0: Now, of course, AI is now coming into play in this area as well. And so using that as something of a segue, I mean, you've just written a book, possibly the book on the future of AI and what it means for the research industry. And it's Thank focusing you. a lot on chat GPT and it's a very practical guide as well. So broad picture, what does it say? I mean, a market researcher is all going to be out of a job in five years' time. <laughs> 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 That's a million dollar question. Um I think market researchers who don't embrace AI will be out of a job in five years' time, yes. So, is ChatGPT just for writing jokes and song lyrics about obscure subjects in the style of well-known bands? No, it's not. There's a very direct applicability to the consumer insights industry. And I've got on the perfect guest to tell us more. David Boyd Audience Strategies, who's written probably the leading book on AI for the industry, Prompt.mba. David has a wealth of experience. He's formerly of Tesco and Harrods, BBC Worldwide, EMI Music, HarperCollins and we dive in here in some detail to begin with around his experiences within the music industry and then we get onto the practical details around ChatGPT in terms of how you can use it, the strengths, weaknesses as well as some of the bigger philosophical questions around generative AI. I learned a huge amount and I hope you will too. So, David, um, very, very nice to see you. A pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. But before we get into the meat of it, I also want to start off with a little bit of an icebreaker and just find out a little bit more about you personally, maybe some of your deepest, darkest secrets. Don't have to be your deepest, darkest secrets, oh, God. but just something that people wouldn't, most people wouldn't know
1: about you. Well, here's one. This might be too nerdy. You tell me if this is too nerdy. But There's no such you know, thing I'm, as too I'm... nerdy, by the way. <laughs> I'm thinking about the nature of work, and like one thing for me is it's like I, I think I focus on things that are quite different from what a lot of people, a lot of other people focus on. And so I think, particularly in insight, I think a lot of people like really, really care about what the insight is. They're like fascinated by how humans behave, and you know what businesses need to do differently. And I think it it always feels like I do, but actually my real passion is the methods and techniques that get you there, and um and, and most people don't really care about that very much, so they kind of gloss over it. But the, my real passion isn't really insights, isn't really how humans behave. It really is like the cool tech that gets you to an answer that's very, very useful as quickly as possible. So what I'm saying is I'm masquerading as an insights person, but actually I don't. I, my head isn't in
0: that space. Actually, I'm just like a, a data nerd behind the scenes. Uh, well, good, good on you. And you've done very well as a data nerd as well. Um, so there's some examples of, of that um I mean before you um wrote the book on chat GPT which we're going to get into but of the type of analytical techniques that you've got excited about but the rest of the world probably didn't
1: yeah good good point I mean often frankly it's polishing techniques that are already widely used so I'd say that like the one I'm obsessed with always have been is is clustering like statistical clustering particularly of audiences but you know, that's a, something that's been happening for a long, 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 long time. Um, there's a quote I read like 14 or 15 years ago by The Economist saying only 14% of executives felt that their clustering, their segmentation delivered real value. So it's something that's been going on forever, but it's also something that usually fails. So I spent nearly 20 years now trying to work out what are all of the reasons it fails, and how can we like roll out a process that's as likely as possible, Mm -hmm. um, to not be in that 14% of failures, just like process engineering, right. But over, you know, nearly 20 years. And again, like that's the bit that really excites me. Like, how can you guarantee success? Not, not like what's the answer, who are my segments, but that's all everyone else cares about.
0: Yeah, that, that that is interesting. I'm just on segmentations here, but we're having going straight into a real nerd out. But why, why do why do most of them fail in your view? And what, what can you do about that? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, uh, I think the answer is there's
1: hundreds, if not thousands of reasons, any one of which might lead to failure. <laughs> so that's why it's 20 years of process engineering. Um, so let's start with data. Like if you have the wrong data, then there's no point drawing whatever conclusions you draw from it. So the right respondents with uh, who you ask the right questions, um, with the right quality controls in place. Uh, that's already, there's hundreds of point, things involved in getting that right. Again, any one of which might ruin everything. Next is interpretation. So if you don't deeply understand the client's business from a strategic point of view, and if you don't engineer a solution that like helps them to make the decisions they're actually trying to make, then, then you're not going to draw the right conclusions. And then roll out, right? If the client doesn't act if the client nods through a presentation or even, I had one recently, applauds through a presentation, um, that's great and it feels really good, but that's not enough. They need a week, a month, and a year from now to be able to recall the names of those audience segments, uh, to, to know what to do differently in their day-to-day mm-hmm. jobs. Um, and that's more than just a presentation, that's ongoing like engagement and training and you know, and, and leadership and things like that. So honestly, maybe about a hundred things, maybe a thousand mm-hmm. things, any one of which might cause it to fail. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a very tough process. That's why yeah. I like it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, but I think those are three very good buckets and they chime with my experience. I'd say some of the other changes
1: we've made that I guess that might help get there is first, in the early days, we have we now invest a lot more time in what we call phase zero, which is really asking, and we ask directors of the company, like literally, what keeps you awake at night? Not, not what do you want from this project, but mm. what keeps you awake at night? What worries you? What stresses you out? And then we can really work out what it is that we need to aim for. And that's where things like media planning often don't get put into the scope early enough or boldly enough. But if that's really something that's keeping somebody awake at night, you need to know really early and you need to design it into the whole process right from the start. And I think frankly, we missed things like that before because they were like passing comments in the scope, but it turned out to be somebody's incredibly important, um, uh, you know, passion point or um, or maybe it wasn't in the scope at all, but turned out to be really, really important. And we only uncovered it later during this process. So, yeah. Um, yeah a lot more face-to-face time and a lot more difficult questions as well to get there because because the briefs and the scopes never really reflect what's actually needed
0: so david dragging us back onto schedule but hopefully a reasonable uh, a reasonable link. i mean how did you generate all this experience and perspective could, could you talk me through your career a little bit
1: well i think it comes yeah it comes back to my passion which is like the, the process so I'm, i would say i'm a data nerd at heart. I, I studied maths at university but theoretical maths the ones that's not applied in any way at all like no real world complications or constraints just the, like the academic theory of it and um maybe that relates back to my first point so you've got like a, a brain that's interested in that kind of thing um and then I did business strategy out of university um strategic management consulting which is using data to drive strat- strategic decisions and um and there I really saw the power of data to, to drive decisions and like the right chart in front of the right person, you know, unlocked millions or billions of investment, you know, it really changed the course of a company. And so I became slightly obsessed with how like what's the best way of getting the right numbers in front of the right person. Um, by chance I ended up running a consumer insight team about eight years later. Um, having bumped up against consumer insight teams a lot. Uh, in strategic consultancy you know you often need the data that they generate it's often hard to get and it's often not as good as you think it's going to be so having bumped up against consumer insight teams often i ended up running one and then just re-engineering it to um to deliver better data in a more efficient and you know way that was more likely to succeed in the music industry i remember i ran the insight team uh, at emi music when it was the fourth of the four Major labels, very exciting. We transformed the business from from being actively dismissive of insight when I started to, to wholeheartedly embracing it when I left. It was a magical, magical moment. Uh, I have to say, I haven't always been that successful in my endeavours, so please don't, <laughs> don't expect that <laughs> for every job I've had. But that was really good. It was really cool. And I remember, you know, at the start, we're designing the research program to help uh, understand what artists should do differently. And I sketched out a little framework for how I thought that should work. And I sat down with one of the stakeholders and, and they said, well, no, no, we don't think that way. We, th- we, you know, this is the decision we're really trying to make. I was like, All right, great. Then we'll re-engineer it. But like, you've got to be obsessed by how can I help the stakeholders to make the decisions they're trying to make? And how can I engineer everything to be as efficient and effective at helping them make that decision as possible hmm. in the music industry? Let's say, you know, we had this process where, um, it was just so brilliantly uh, engineered, uh, an A&R person, let's say a label working with, with new talent could submit a song to our song testing program and in about three weeks and, um, and for almost no money for like two or three hundred pounds, they could get back an incredibly rich rapport which would set the strategy for that song, exactly which audiences, exactly which territories. And because it was standardised, they knew exactly how to read that report, and so it was such an incredibly powerful impact you could have by standardising the the processes and the the ways of working. You know, before that, you would have had to specially commission some research. You'd had to design the research, mm. you had to pay for the research, and then you'd have had to work out how to interpret it on the back end as a stakeholder. Mm you know, that's enough to stop you from practically doing it for almost all projects. Whereas mm. when it's sufficiently run, almost every artist in almost every country gets A-grade treatment thanks to this efficient process. So it massively multiplies the impact that you have when you when you really get the process smooth massively.
0: Yeah. So how, how did that work, if you don't mind me just dipping into that? So if I play it back, you're an artist, you've got a new song, and it, will, what, it would go to a a testing programme, which is sort of of a a very slick audience testing programme where you've got audience feedback on it?
1: Absolutely. We play it to thousands of representative consumers in different countries around the world in a carefully controlled environment. And uh, because we had an awesome audience segmentation, we could tell you exactly which segments uh, were excited about it now, um, not yet or never. Mm. Um, and And therefore, exactly how it should be marketed in each country. Uh, a good example, we Tiny Temper, at the very start of his career, we researched some of his music before anyone in the UK had ever heard his music, and the um, the label team were so excited about him, uh, so excited that he was going to be a superstar, but the music testing from those original tracks did not come back saying that. It came back saying there's one or two relatively niche segments who are excited about his music today, not that others wouldn't be tomorrow, but today, it's just those two. So we had to rein back marketing and focus it on just those two segments to build up that fan base before um, for other segments came on board. And three months later, a couple more segments. Three months later, a couple more segments. So it's a really carefully managed rollout to superstar status where he got to in the end. But if they'd if they'd taken their instinct that he'll get there, and they'd applied it on day one, which they were going to. I think they would have failed because they'd have done loads of marketing to audiences that weren't yet ready mm. for his music. Um, so yeah, it was incredibly impactful for superstars, but as well as new artists who went on to be superstars. Yeah, um, but but it was yeah, very really powerful.
0: Fo- but but it wasn't focused on trying to improve the song or anything like that. It's more about identifying the potential audience for the song and then tailoring the marketing campaign accordingly.
1: Absolutely. And again, I think that comes down to an obsession about jobs to be done. So the, the decision they did want to make was, shall I invest in this song or not? And if so, um, what type of marketing should I do? Um, the decision they did not want to make was, how can I tweak the song to make it the best song it can be? Um, it's absolutely not what they wanted. And so we, we were very careful not to do that. Uh, by the way, we, we also provided the information required in order to give you a good sense of that. Uh, quite a lot of A&R people chose to use it in that way, which is up to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think the insight teams telling the uh, the, uh, the creative side of the business what type of music to make and how to make music as as popular as possible, would, I don't think is the right role of insight. And it's not, it would not have gone down well. It's not, it was not a job that they welcomed us to help them to do. Um, but I do believe in giving people that information and and if they choose to go after it, that's up to them. And if they choose not to, that's up to them as well. Actually, David Getter is a great example of this. And I, I sat with David Getter to talk about um, lots of different things. We had three hours to, to nerd out over data together. It was awesome. Um, but there was one graph I showed him, and, and in particular, it was 90s music in the UK like really stood out as being something that people in the UK said sucked. Um, and so I, I quipped, you know, def- definitely stay away from 90s music he had this big smile on his face and i said why why are you why are you smiling something's going on in your mind and he said i'm going to he sat back in his chair and said i'm going to bring that back so i think great creatives will take audience feedback and say all right they don't want me to do that i'm going to do it anyway and that i think is brilliant
0: now, of course, AI is now coming into play in this area as well. And so using that as something of a segue, I mean, you've just written a book, possibly the book on the future of AI and what it means for the research industry. I'm um, sorry to hear that it's lost leading, but it's um, I think it's having quite an impact. And it's Thank focusing you. a lot on chat GPT, and it's a very practical guide as well. So broad picture, what does it say? I mean, a market researcher is all going to be out of a job in five years' time. <laughs> A <laughs> million-dollar question. Um, I think market researchers
1: who don't embrace AI will be out of a job in five years' time. Yes, but I regard that to be their choice. <laughs> and so uh, no, no one's losing a job. Um, no one who's sufficiently curious about new technologies is losing a job. And I see this on one level just as another new technology. We went from uh, phone calling survey respondents to uh, to reaching them digitally. We went from um, focusing entirely on survey data to also including social data. You know, we've been through several revolutions of um, of, of how we get data and also how we interpret data. This is just another thing. It's vastly bigger and quicker than any other way of technology, so it's vastly more important that you embrace this one quickly than any other one. You could get yeah. away without doing online polling in a world of telephone polling for nearly a decade. Honestly, it sounds crazy, but you could. You can't get away with with delaying this by five, five months, I think.
0: And um, why what, what is that? just because it's moving so fast it's,
1: it's it's so impactful um there's a brilliant academic study let me step back it's so impactful in so many areas that it's, it's not just a one tool for one use case there's a brilliant academic study that illustrates this a group of researchers out of MIT for professional writing tasks um like reviewing um, some some research or writing a proposal or you know typical like professional writing tasks that we might do. Um, they gave a couple of hundred people chat GPT and said, you can use this if you like to help you with these tasks, a couple of hundred, they didn't. Um, and they, and they tested them, how good their writing was. And the group that were unable to use chat GPT were, and it's quite a long list. They were quicker, they were better. Um, they had more fun. They, uh, were, um, there was they spent more time doing strategic work like editing and less time doing the really boring stuff like first drafting rough drafting they had higher self-confidence in their work i've forgotten three or four benefits but there were loads i mean it was transformational to the to, to what they did and how they did it and so in a world where a lot of people are embracing this technology and a lot of people aren't i think the difference in quality difference in speed mm. Uh, difference in clarity of writing is going to be completely apparent very quickly if if somebody is not using it, they're going to look you know significantly behind the market. Now let's think about the the, the market research process. Um, writing a proposal is something that quite often takes quite a long time. It really shouldn't. Uh, writing a proposal now takes almost no time uh, because your scrappy notes on what you think the client needs can be turned into quite a thoughtful and detailed uh, proposal can be elaborated on can be uh, reworded and can be kind of structured so uh, particularly if you feed it bits of your old proposals uh, the scrappy notes plus old proposals equals a new proposal now with with way less mental effort way less time and i find that they're way richer and better than the proposals we used to write so quality improved but also the speed has improved and the mental load has decreased massively so that's something now that clients should expect a proposal within an hour uh, whereas mm. previously it often took you know mm. a week mm. so that's just radically different yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and second it- the same is true of writing up research reports as well like it just mm. just didn't take anywhere near as long
0: yeah, I think it might be useful, actually, if we went through the, the rungs that you were talking about as uh, well, that I know are part of the book. So I was at Quirks last week, and, and I saw your co-author, Richard Bowman, give a very good presentation on that. And so just at a high level, could you talk through the, the principles that he articulated that are in the book around sort of the various rungs that you go through in terms of uh, using chat GBT and the you know, the skill sets and expertise associated with that?
1: That's a really good point, because I've sat with a lot of people, um, leaders in big global corporations, and, and when you start talking about what we're going to show you as the very high rungs, a lot of them say, oh, I didn't even know it could do that. Um, and so just seeing this laid out is, is, is really helpful, I think, to people. So we say that there's six rungs on the ladder of mastering chat at GPT, and it's totally okay to start at rung one. In fact, you should start at rung one mm-hmm. to get the hang of it. Uh, And that's something like small talk, so jokes or simple questions, conversations, you know, having fun, being silly. That's okay. That's how humans, babies learn to use tools by playing with them, being silly with them and eventually working out, it's a spoon, I can eat with it. Mm -hmm. So play, have fun, be silly. Rung two is similar, but slightly more sophisticated. That's playful creations. So poems, songs, stories, like simple brainstorming, ideation, that kind of thing. They're starting to get a bit more useful to you, but it's still somewhat playful. Um, Master that definitely, but then go one more step. That's rung three, Uh, information and understanding. So that's when you start to ask ChatGPT to explain complicated concepts, uh, maybe summarize articles or meeting transcripts for you um try definitions or explanations like if you want to insert the five marketing p's into your um into your proposal or you're not sure whether it's four five or seven and you ask chat gpt what are the four five and seven uh p's of marketing explain each to me you know and bring them to life for me in relation mm. to this industry there you go there's a big chunk of your proposal right there um Rung four is task assistant, so it's getting more work focused now. Like I've got a specific task, help me get this done. Maybe give me step-by-step instructions for how I might conduct a research project or uh, or guidance on best practices around uh, qualitative research maybe. Mm. Um, advanced ideation, like I've got a specific client need, Like come up with 10 ideas for audience needs around this particular client problem. Very, very good at that. Uh, mm. Persuasive arguments. You know, I'm convinced that X is true. Please help me think about all the reasons why X is true. Mm. Um, and please bring that to life. You should also say also What are all the reasons why X might be false? Please, <laughs> please tell me why I'm
0: wrong. Bring that to life as well. It's very, very good at that. Mm. Yeah, um, that's really creative that's writing or problem solving. That's really interesting. So it seems like, and obviously, people should. Buy the book and read the book if they really want to get the the answer to this, as well as you know attending the conferences that you are uh, speaking at and and running. But it, it seems like there's a there are certain techniques and processes around the way you phrase questions and try to triangulate questions from different directions in order to get the, the most out of it as a tool.
1: Yeah, and you can't get to level four, five, or six um, without without really mastering that I would say level six by the way is then strategic insights and decisions that's when you're using it to really help you understand audiences in a deep way, you know that kind of thing. but you can easily write fun poems and tell jokes at the bottom of the ladder without knowing much about how to prompt chat GPT but once you get to the top you need to ask quite quite cleverly worded questions um yeah we say that um, there's 10 ingredients to a, to a prompt if you if you really want it to be very 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 good. I certainly won't remember all 10 off the top of my head, but it's something like, who am I? Like, I'm David Boyle, I run a research agency. Mm. If it knows that, it's going to give you an answer that's more tailored to your needs than if you don't tell it who you are. Like, you could be a school kid, you could be a scientist, you know, I to see. tell it who you are. Be clear what your goals are, be clear the style you want it to answer in, be clear, be clear any constraints that you have, like, suggest for me a marketing plan, but it can't cost more than $500 or $5,000 you know, tell it any constraints. So when you look down the list, you say to yourself, oh, they're all common sense things. Yes, mm. they are. Mm. Um, but it's, it's easy to forget nine out of 10 of them if you're not careful. So yeah, getting the right prompt is very, very important or, or, or being clear enough or, um, or specific enough to the point where I'd say, if you can't get Chat GPT to give you an answer you're happy with, it's probably the prompt. It's probably not a, a limit of Chat GPT. Mm. That's a
0: crazy statement yeah. to make, by the way. And building off that, well, I'll, actually, I'll go back to this point like, in a moment, but to the, the idea of being able to produce a proposal in an hour, is that really the case, a good client proposal, or is it the fact that it will get you to a very good level, whatever it might be, for sake of argument, a 7 out of 10 in an hour, and then you can apply an additional layer on top to make it a 9 out of 10, um, and the whole process is only taking you two hours rather than a week?
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. I should be clear that… But I always um, assume that what we're doing is using ChatGPT to help us do our jobs rather than having it do our job for us. Okay. So I'm not talking about ChatGPT writing a proposal for me. I'm talking about using it to help me write one. Um, so yes, absolutely, within an hour, like easily. Um, because really one of the analogies we use in the book is that ChatGPT is like an electric bike for the mind picture instead of writing a proposal picture, a bike trip that we're going on. And, um, and all the other agencies are on pedal bikes, which is fine, uh, but there's some big Hills there's long distances to get this proposal written. Um, and I have an electric bike, I've Chat GPT by my side and I still have to pedal, I still have to steer and I still have to get us to our destination to navigate this thing. Um, but that's, that's on me, not chat GPT, but it's an accelerant to my abilities to t- again. If I have three or four rough notes for um, the methodologies we will use, ChatGPT is quicker at turning them into a structured set of methodologies that are are client-readable than I am.
0: Um, That makes a lot of sense. I I like that analogy. Uh, You're much
1: quicker and much better and much clearer, as the MIT study shows. So however long it takes you to write a proposal now, it is a fact that you will be quicker, better, and clearer
0: as a result of having ChatGPT help you to do it. And, and what are the best resources for researchers? Yeah, I think that's that's a
1: really tough question because there's so much that's required. So we we talk about how a prompt is only one sixth of what you need in order to um, in order to be able to use ChatGPT properly, uh, for example. So um, the answer is not uh, that you should just find somebody who's very good at prompting because again, that's only one sixth of the solution that you need. What you actually need is um somebody who's an expert in the thing that it is you're trying to do um somebody who's thoughtful about the process by which you go through using chat gpt so at what stage do you use it how do you then ask it to iterate uh, and refine Uh, what type of output do you look for from chat gpt and and how do you integrate that into your broader process Uh, and then you know the prompting piece comes along then at the end of it as well so at the very first, somebody has to be an expert in the topic, thoughtful about process engineering and um, and a good mm-hmm. prompter in order to be useful to you. So that's your basic filter. Um, and then obviously the answer is by our book, but... <laughs> <laughs> <I did. Okay. laughs>
0: but credit to you. Credit to you that you didn't go with that answer straight off the bat.
1: Well, my job is to help you to work out how to do the thing you do, and if that's
0: if you need me to do the work for
1: you, or you read my book, that's great. And if not, then I'm happy to help you. And by the way, the, I should say the book is free to anybody who doesn't feel like they can afford it for any reason whatsoever, no questions asked. So just message me or Richard or any of us, and we'll we'll give you a download code, no problems whatsoever. So that we're not trying to make money out of this, but. It'd be nice if some people actually bought it. <laughs> to pay, uh, to, <laughs> I, I rather ask, than everybody I, asking for it for free.
0: Yes, I, I won't. I won't ask how many people have paid for it as opposed to uh, buying it, buying it or getting it for free.
1: I'd say it's a it's a it's a two to one ratio, free versus paid, something like that. I would say, which is totally, totally, totally fine. And that um, we're honoured that people we looked up to and respected our whole careers have bought a copy and have have, have said beautiful things about it. So. You know, we've we've touched people and 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 had the impact we want with it. Uh so we're very happy to
0: kind of scale this and get it in as many hands as possible. That's that's why we wrote it. It wasn't it wasn't to make money. Sure. Um well yeah, very good on you. It's so how would do you respond to some of the criticisms of chat GPT or generative AI as a whole, not around, you know, the threat to humans, which is a different subject and kind of podcast, but you know, it's like the idea that it's actually very derivative—it's almost like derivative intelligence. It's going to spout back to you um, an agglomeration of previous ideas rather than helping to take a leap forwards. That's a good, it's a good criticism. But I would first—I
1: would say it's it's a theoretical criticism rather than a practical one. So theoretically, that's an interesting conversation to have, and happy to dig into that. Practically speaking let's look at two data points one is I, i've spent 20 years doing this stuff in the real world and i'm i'm telling you hand on heart that um that this is helpful to me in doing my job we have better hypothesis for the segments when we start a research project we're clearer on what the what we find in our research um as a result of using chat gpt to help us and we're quicker in our process now so I'm just telling you hand on heart, I having done hundreds mm. of audience segmentations. ours with with chat GPT by our side, we're quicker, better and clearer now.
0: And I, I I believe you, actually. And I think it's even though it's a um you know it's a proof point of one, it makes sense mm. um, in, in terms of what you're saying and for us,
1: the proof point. So the MIT study of coders writing code um, it shows that they're significantly better and quicker and happier in their work if, when they use coding copilot. So there's, mm. there's a few different studies pointing in the same direction. And I would say, let's say you're still sold on the theory that is derivative. We can come back to that. I can dismiss that, I think, as well. But let's say you're still stuck on the theory. I would urge you to say, well, what if David's right? What if MIT's right? What if Bill Gates is right talking about this? What what if um, coders are right? What if all this evidence is right? If it's right, that's, that's a promise that for free, because it's free, that's a promise that for free, you can be better, clearer, and quicker in your work. Do you not want to try it?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good I, I argument.
1: When you do, you'll find that there's no signs whatsoever. Sorry, there's very few signs of this of this derivativeness that, that occur. Um, when I ask it to think about some audience segments for a client, are one or two of them the kind of segments that, that are like obvious and maybe slightly derivative. Yeah, they are. And so give it a sharper prompt um, or throw them away and um and ask for two new. Say, I like one, three, five, and seven, ignore the rest, throw them away and start again. But that's on you to um to do that. If you're writing a document, is the first draft sometimes out of chat GPT, is it sometimes slightly bland? Yeah. Again, either go back with more specific prompts or edit it yourself. And editing uh, slightly Land document to spice it up a little bit and add your unique perspective is much easier on the mind uh, and mm. gets you to a better place quicker than starting with a blank sheet of paper so mm. even if it is slightly derivative and slightly boring some sometimes and it is sometimes uh, a it's your prompt or b it's your, your process to, to kind of fix and overcome it it's still better so practically speaking i don't find that any kind of a concern in my in my months of practical usage i think because let's talk about the theory just for a second Quite a lot of what we do is actually relatively formulaic. Back to my point on process to start with.
0: Yeah, like, yeah. I, I, was, client, just think, I, I a- was just thinking something something similar in that you you could argue that humans human creativity, ironically, actually is inevitably quite derivative because you're drawing on experiences, you're drawing on impulses, you mix them together to create something new. But actually, you're mixing them together. You're mixing up the past to create something new for the future, which is kind of what generative AI is doing. And let's take a proposal for a client. Again, we've talked about that a lot. So we'll keep, we'll keep working
1: that example. Um, the real magic that I add after doing this for 20 years to proposal, the real magic I add is lasering in on the one or two or three really important client needs. is picking the two or three methodologies that are really needed uh, out of a very, very long list. Um, it's knowing whether it's a four-week or a six-week or an eight-week process, given the quality constraints and the you know the, the level of investment that that client needs. It's stuff like that, and and I do all those things still in the proposal. It's it's just a that's about all I do, mm-hmm. and the elaboration, expansion, the explanation of exactly what each phase is and exactly how each phase works. I, that's I'm not needed for that, and it's in fact nice. a waste of my time um, to be doing that stuff. So two-thirds of the words in a client proposal are not that special. They're not that exciting. That one-third that are special and are exciting are the ones I still write myself and still edit myself and still own. I absolutely own the final output, something I'm proud of. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, quite a lot of what we do is slightly uh, derivative, like elaboration or explanation sentences of simple concepts. And I I spend like those writers in the MIT study. I spend more time editing, setting directions, setting strategy now, which is therefore better um, because I don't have to be distracted by first drafting or, or explaining the basics to people.
0: That's Chat GPT does that for me. Gotcha. I recognise the argument that if you're having a problem with Chat GPT, the problem may be you, not Chat GPT. That said, have you run into any drawbacks that you think people should be aware of? Yeah, definitely. There's loads. So I think the first thing
1: is, yeah, yeah just really, really think carefully about what you're doing, and um, and make sure that you do try to follow the the lessons. Yeah, for example, we talked about how you should always own the output. You should always own the end work. You should edit, refine, enhance anything that Chat GPT comes up with, so that it's genuinely your work at the end. Such a simple, clear thing um you know just don't do it Mm. but don't send somebody chat GPT output like always edit refine it enhance it yourself so yeah i mean i don't know how to emphasize that anymore clearly but, Mm. but everyone nods along and everyone makes that mistake anyway um yeah then there's lots of lots of simple lessons like you know it doesn't know anything that happened in the world after late 2021 and so use it for things that are yeah, that are underlying and um and not not fast changing in the world like human wants and needs haven't changed much since late 2021 underlying human needs specifically how they apply in tiktok has changed a lot so just don't ask it for, uh, for specifics on how to use tiktok today it, it doesn't know but what are the wants and needs of, of young people they have not changed very much that's a great way to use it yeah, and then I think it's not good at factual recall. It has a rough sense of who said precisely what quote when um, mm-hmm. but it, and what URL that quote can be found at, but it's not very good at recalling specific quotes. It's not very good at recalling specific URLs, and it's not very good at recalling specific facts. So again, just don't use it for those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got no patience for somebody who's, who who says, oh, that GBT is garbage because look this this quote, this URL, and this data wrong. Um, it's, it's absolutely not something you should use it for. Um, so yeah, there's a, there are a few
0: few kind of guide rails there. But um, yeah, that, those those make a lot of sense. Are you running into any issues with the clients you're working with around concerns that their proprietary data? Because let's face it, like survey data is you know generally proprietary to you know to a given client unless it's a syndicated service that their proprietary data may end up being part of open source models?
1: I think this is a good theoretical concern. Um, I don't think it's a good practical concern for for a few different reasons. Uh, First of all, you can opt out on OpenAI's website from your data being used in that way. Um, So that actually should resolve the issue. Mm. Um, Even if you don't opt out, then I think... Every prompt that you type into Chat GPT and whether your prompt includes some data or not, every prompt you type in is, is fair game for OpenAI to in theory read and in theory use to train the models. But there are hundred there's a hundred million people around the world typing stuff into that, that box. Three-quarters of which is probably just plain wrong <laughs> and <laughs> and and that, And and when I type in, like what should the strategy for Shell be? Um you know hundreds of college students all around the world are typing that in and, and how how the hell is anybody going to um, going to know which which were the real shell employees revealing leaking their secret strategy plans and which were college students doing a college project you know mm. it's impossible so I, I don't think practically if you type in your company's secret plans there's any risk whatsoever <laughs> that mm, they're going to be surfaced um so I don't think there's any kind of practical risk, but there is a good theoretical risk. So for all the lawyers out there, um, yeah, you should definitely check terms and conditions and yeah. go through approvals and do your opt-outs. But it's not something that really worries me. And and it's a slight theoretical risk on the one side, but a, a hardly very strongly evidenced significant upside on the other. So even if you accept that risk is real, it still shouldn't stop you because you're foregoing a massive benefit in order to like yeah. yourself against that risk.
0: Yeah, yeah. When you evaluate the risk reward com- component of it, what is also interesting, we talked a lot about the early stages of the process in terms of formulating proposals, and I can imagine the the process and it's outlined actually in the book in terms of the in terms of questionnaires and that type of thing. But is anyone managing to close the circle? In the sense of taking primary consumer-based data, so for instance, survey, and then really using generative AI to sort of, to analyse and evolve the results.
1: That's a good question. I would say, I would say the a bigger use case on the on the latter half of a research project is bringing the results to life for the client. So let's say even if you don't use it to find insights in the data. Um, Using it to bring those insights to life is absolutely a very clear and very powerful use case that you can use today. Um, And that would be some simple things like um, feeding into chat GPT, hey, these are the four statements um, that most uniquely define this audience segment. Come up with 10 names for this segment for me. Um, You'll come up with names that are better and clearer than the ones you would have come up with, and you'll do it quicker earlier in the process. Um feeding into ChatGPT, hey, here are some statements that describe how this audience segment behaves. Please write a, a one paragraph, five paragraph and 10 paragraph overview um, of, of who this segment is that brings them to life for the client. Again, you'll get segment descriptions that are better, clearer and quicker than the ones you would have had before. And, you know, in more formats, hey, please bring the segment to life uh, in one paragraph for a marketing person. In one paragraph for a product person, in one paragraph uh, for the for the leadership team making investment decisions, you know, again, <laughs> mm. more more applications to more stakeholders than you otherwise would have done, and then on the um, on the so what side, once you know who the segments are, let's say, um, I think all too often insight teams stop uh, before they say, and therefore you should do these things differently which is back to our earlier conversation about not wanting to to, to tell the business what to do. But now you can say, hey, uh, we're targeting this segment uh, in a business that does roughly these things. Uh, Come up with 10 uh, product innovations, 10 marketing innovations, uh, and 10 positioning innovations that might meet the needs of this segment. And they're not factually based, not based on the research, but they're the kind of innovation ideations that should follow from research. And instead of waiting for the workshop and, and waiting for the client to come up with them, or instead of having to use like really valuable brain power coming up with them, you can you can do it. You can do it early. Uh, you can do it more clearly than you otherwise would have done. And again, you can spend your time editing, uh, setting strategy for them, refining them, and coming up with making sure it comes up with good ones rather than having to do the actual work of coming up with them in the first place. So your work will just. Reach a bigger audience, it will be clearer to them, it will be quicker, and it will be much more comprehensive than it otherwise would have been. So, at the very least, you should be doing all those things.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like I said, I mean, thank you. Those are really, really practical examples. And I suppose if I back up to the analytical component, I mean, in many ways, lots of agencies and in house uh, departments have been using all sorts of machine learning techniques, actually, anyway, to, to crunch the data and look for patterns. Um, so, It's almost that—that's the area of the process where, actually, to some extent, AI, depending on how you want to define it, has has actually already been embedded uh, for for many, many years.
1: That's really true, and I think that the only part of the analytics where the current AI is massively helpful in a way that's very easy is uh, interpreting open ends or qual um, transcripts, for example. It is amazing. And you paste in open ends and ask chat gpt to give you the themes the extrapolations categorizations um, it doesn't care about bad language the scrappy notes that people put in it knows me it's it's so very very powerful for those things qual transcript as well and again if if we step back what i'm focusing on here is what can most people practically do with the free chat gpt tool that's available now there's so much that everybody can do now today for free I'm really focusing on getting everybody to do those things first before we worry about all the other
0: stuff, like the detailed database analytics. Dave, I'm conscious we're getting to time. So if it's all right with you, I might do a quick far round. Great, let's do it. That sounds scary and fun. No, it shouldn't be scary. Um, particularly the first question, which hopefully is, is, is an easy one. Have you had any mentors? And if so, what did they teach you? Yes, I've been really lucky, really lucky with... Um,
1: with senior people who've put an arm around me. I think because I'm a bit of a nerd, people feel sorry for me sometimes, maybe. Oh, I, I <laughs> or, <doubt> um, <laughs> um, yeah, and particularly really strong women um, constantly stood out to me as, you know, as being somebody who's like, really inspiring. In politics, I went to American politics for a while. There was a, a woman called Karen Hicks. It was a real inspiration. She really knew her stuff, really knew what she wanted, really knew um, how how to run a political campaign um, and really taught me how to apply my data skills in a way that was most useful for political campaigns getting run efficiently and effectively and knocking on the right doors and targeting the right ads to the right voters but I had the like math skills the analytical skills but not that knowledge and yeah and she was an incredible guide to me to that industry and, and you know how to be an effective how to effectively
0: have an impact in that world Um, fantastic what's the biggest good mistake you've ever made so for instance a mistake you made but something that you really learned from well the first
1: one that springs to mind and then we go back to the music industry and go back to music testing as we did before and uh, an A&R person Miles who I really love and respect um, but was scary at the time because I didn't know him very well and he was like you know, he'd been in the industry forever and knew everything. He finally had asked me to help him test some music by an upcoming artist that he had. And I thought this is such a great opportunity. You know, I'm making friends with the real influencers here. I'm starting to have some impact in this business. So I researched some five songs that by this up-and-coming artist that he's really passionate about. He wants to know what will be the lead single. So I go- confidently go into the meeting because one song scored higher than all the others. I confidently go in and say Miles good good news we've got a very clear answer you know this one scored much higher than all the other songs therefore this is the lead single and he said well that's not the lead single then and I just looked at him thinking oh my god you know I've done all this work for you um and now you're dismissing it because it's not the answer you want and he politely explained to me that the band weren't ready for a big hit that they needed to uh, build a fan base so they would go with some of the smaller songs build their expertise, build a fan base and keep that big hit in reserve for when they needed it. And so I learned that I was answering the wrong question (laughs) in that case. I jumped to conclusions about what he wanted to do um, and I should be much more careful about getting under the skin of stakeholders (laughs) and work out what they really want. So making silly mistakes like that, I think is, is incredibly powerful if you learn from them. And it's really easy for analysts in particular or researchers sometimes to to go in overly confident, but again, not really understand what the stakeholder is trying to do or or the industry you're in. I think that's one reason people are timid about giving recommendations to stakeholders because they know that they don't fully understand their situation. But I think often a wrong conclusion gets you to the right answer quicker than sitting on the fence and not giving a conclusion at all, which is what people do quite
0: often. Yeah, it's a very fair point, isn't it? As you say, it's trying to judge where you have the credence and sufficient background to, to give an opinion. Yet yeah, You don't, don't want to make a fool of yourself. Now, the risk of making a fool of myself, slightly personal, tell me if it's an impertinent kind of question, but what, what would your partner say your best and worst characteristics are? Oh, good God. What would you say my worst? Let's think.
1: Okay, the worst is definitely chores around the house, for sure. <laughs> um and the, my massive weakness is this is going to sound really really weird but my massive weakness is if we, i'm either working or relaxing and anything in the middle i just you know i don't really have much time for or, or don't make enough time for so you know I, I definitely define time for that third thing which which is chores i, know, yeah, I feel really bad about that but
0: well i I, um, I don't think you're alone in that by the way but anyway but what what what, what would uh what would you think your, your best characteristic, is? My
1: best characteristic um, I think I think she would say kindness, I think um yeah I, I spend a lot of time like mentoring people, maybe or doing free work for people who don't have a budget or things like that, which I enjoy, and I love, and I'm happy to do it um but then when I do complain about not quite having the money needed to pay the mortgage then she she reminds me that maybe I haven't spent my time in the way that's most efficient to drive that outcome, so um. Yeah, I just care about. I really, what drives me fundamentally is like the passion for data and using it to help people. And so that helping people thing just leads me to to um, spend way too much time like helping people and way too little time kind of making money.
0: Well, and and thank you by the way for your time doing doing this interview, which again is another example of uh, helping me understand some uh, what I, what previously I thought was some quite complex concepts. But you've done a great job of of, of helping elucidate them. Now, David, final question. You're not allowed to say your own book, and I know you wouldn't, but what have some of your f- favorite recent books been or, or, or pieces of media? What, what would you recommend? Ah, uh, yes. Um,
1: there's a book that I've been completely obsessed with um, called How Minds Change by an author called David McCraney. Um, and it is this most incredible look at how people do and don't change their minds. Um, And and it's incredibly challenging because one of the headline findings is that good, clear data is absolutely nowhere near enough um, and is usually not the driver for people changing their minds. And since we come from an industry where we believe that good, clear data is all you need in order to set the strategy of an organization or or change a stakeholder's mind on something, um, this is an incredibly challenging book to read. Um, But it teaches you get under the skin of what's really driving somebody's decision what really is motivating them um, and what really they're trying to achieve which we've talked about throughout this podcast Um, and so you see it from a whole different angle when you start talking about flat earthers um, and and things like that so yeah i definitely recommend that highly to anybody it's challenging but also like really humanizing of people with with beliefs that are very opposite to ours
0: yeah, that that sounds yeah fantastic, and actually uh, a, a, a meritorious approach as well in trying to you know persuade people that it's okay to disagree. David, thank you so much. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and um, I've learned an enormous amount from you.
1: It's been so fun. I really love your work. We really love the podcast. It's such a honour to be on. So thank you.
0: Thanks once more to David for his time, generosity with his knowledge, and putting up with my prying questions. If you want to start using ChatGPT as part of your process, you can get a detailed how-to guide and much more by downloading David and Richard's book at prompt.mba. Now the next episode will be up hopefully next week, failing that the week afterwards, but I think it's a cracker. You'll have to wait and see what I mean. Thanks again to Insight Platforms for their support and to you for listening.